because our self-control is limited, we need to judiciously use that resource to not only invest in getting more of it, but in reducing the amount that we need in a day-to-day business. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We have an excellent episode lined up for you today, but before we get to our Christ and Culture conversation, let's begin with our segment called Ask the Profs. Dr. Keithley, we received this question from one of our listeners. I'm going to read it to you. It's a long one, so so brace yourself and, and get ready to answer it. Here we go. The question goes like this. Why do charismatic and Pentecostal Christians seem so free and happy in the Lord while so many Baptists do not? How have these two traditions formed and grown to have such different experiences of God, his word, and his people? What is this freedom and happiness our Pentecostal brothers and sisters experience? I imagine it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells us Baptists, but because their experience of life seems so different, I think the question is worth asking. Dr. Keithley, how would you answer that question? Why is it that there seems to be a difference between those of us who are Baptist and those of us who are perhaps more charismatic and in the questioner's question, a little bit more happy? Yeah, that question went in a slightly different direction than I was expecting whenever you said, you know, what are the difference between Pentecostals and Baptists? I think that, first off, I want to rejoice in every happy Christian that we know. Uh, And I do think that uh, celebrating our freedom in Christ is certainly something that I think that every Christian ought to do, regardless of what their denominational affiliation is. It could be that because those who are in charismatic and Pentecostal denominations are encouraged to celebrate their freedom in Christ in a way that perhaps we as Baptists have not, it could just simply be a a cultural advantage that I think that we as Baptists might might ought to look at. Anytime when we start talking about the distinctions between Pentecostal churches and Baptist churches, we're almost always going to be in danger of overgeneralizations. I mean, I can think of Baptists who are very happy. I can think of a few Pentecostals I've known that were not. So it's really kind of kind of dangerous to simply just speak in generalities about uh, personalities and, 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 and traits like that. Doctrinally, typically, Baptists affirm a few things uh, one way and Pentecostals uh, affirm things a little differently. You say, what would those differences be? Well, Baptists typically, you know, there's exceptions, would affirm the security of the believer. Many Pentecostal denominations do not. Baptist denominations typically have a complementarian understanding of church polity. That is, they would argue for uh, male pastors where typically uh, Pentecostal denominations would allow for women pastors. Those would be some of the differences, but the major difference would be that Pentecostal churches often argue that there is a second work of the Holy Spirit after salvation. And that is that after a person has experienced regeneration, that then they should seek a secondary gift, which would they describe as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
And they would understand this in a variety of ways, that it has some type of special sanctifying uh, effect. Whereas most Baptists would argue for a more progressive understanding, that we have this lifelong work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, and there may be moments in which we have a great jump or change in our walk with the Lord, but they don't associate it with some type of expression such as speaking in tongues. So that would be the primary distinction or difference. What do uh, Pentecostals understand speaking in tongues to be? Well, we've talked about that in just a couple of weeks ago, and I invite people to, to go back about the different understandings of tongues. Are tongues the ability to speak in an earthly uh, language in a supernatural way, or is it an ability to speak in an angelic language that no one understands uh, other than the angels in heaven? Um, or if there's an interpreter, uh, that would be basically the two ways that they would understand uh, that gift. And most Pentecostals or Charismatic would, would say that they're exercising the unknown gift or the unknown tongue. Baptists, by and large, and boy, there's exceptions to that. I mean, I can name a, f a couple of very famous, uh, well-known Baptists uh, who are also Pentecostals, are charismatic in their theology. So everything I'm saying here is, 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 is dealing with generalities. Baptists, by and large, have been cautiously open, or else they've been cessationist. Uh, cessationist would be those who would argue that the sign gifts have em ended, and so that, that there, are, there is no gift of tongues for today. I'm not one of those. Uh, I, I don't think I can prove that from scriptures. I think that the, uh, it's possible that the sign gifts are still open today. However, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that it teaches that there is a second work of the Holy Spirit, a second sanctifying uh, event that occurs after the, the regenerating event that is then demonstrated by speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm not convinced of that, and most Baptists would, would agree with me on that. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, for answering that really challenging question. We, uh, we threw you a hard one today, uh, but thank you for answering that one. If you have a question that you want to send our way, follow us on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, or head to our website, find the Contact Us form there, and you can send the question. We'd love to answer your question here on the Christ and Culture podcast. Self-control is a critical aspect of what it means to be human and what it means to be a Christian. But what does science teach us about this important part of our lives? Today, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Justin Barrett to discuss this very question. Dr. Barrett is president of Blueprint 1543, honorary professor of theology and the sciences at St. Andrews University School of Divinity. He's also a faithful Christian, and recently he joined us for our Exploring Personhood conference. Uh, Dr. Barrett, thank you for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about your life, your faith, and your work. Tell us a bit, little bit about your journey. I grew up in a Christian home. I was also grew up in sort of a rural environment. I liked going outdoors and playing with nature, catching critters, and sometimes doing very humane dissections of them. 
because I was just fascinated by the natural world. And, and I, I always saw this as just a powerful testimony of God's creative power and his uh, providential sort of sustaining of, you know, everything around us. I was a very enthusiastic sort of consumer of the sciences. But at a certain point, I discovered the uh, psychological sciences. I went to Calvin College, now Calvin University, where I learned to think Christianly about all kinds of science areas. And one of those that I got exposed to was psychology. And I just became uh, just fascinated by the scientific side of psychology. Um, so I started learning about that, um, felt like that the reason God put me on this earth, at least in part, was to become a professional nerd. And uh, so I went ahead and did the, the doctorate and uh, became a professor. And uh, through my doctoral training, I first started getting exposed to ideas like evolutionary psychology. It was just starting to come into vogue. And I didn't know what to do with that. My faith background uh, was not terribly comfortable with human evolution. <laughs> um, it's uh, something that's a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of us, I think, because of a lot of the, uh, well, a lot of the narratives around uh, human evolution that uh, we're told, right, that that undercuts a certain view of scriptural authority, that it raises certain kinds of theological problems of why would God use such, what seems to be such a brutal process in some ways to bring about uh, creatures like us. And then it seems to have some evidential problems as well. Some of the biggest champions of evolutionary psychology have uh, advanced a view of humanity that sure looks disturbing from a Christian perspective. You know, that we're I think, I, yeah, I think we could safely yeah. say that there have been those who have advanced a worldview in the name of science, particularly right. evolutionary science, that that is not just hostile uh, but antithetical to the Christian faith. I think I think that needs to be recognized. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And so I think for those reasons, it took me a while to even feel comfortable sort of giving evolutionary psychology a, a clear-eyed look. It's mining it for well, what are its strengths in spite of these. Uh, excesses that its popularizers have sort of pushed sometimes. Is is there some value that we can take from this area of science? And uh, uh, it's been a long time coming, but I finally was persuaded to go ahead and write this book, this Thriving with Stone Age Minds book, where I'm trying to introduce evolutionary psychology to fellow evangelicals um, in a way that is fair to evolutionary psychology at its best, but also not minimizing some of its uh, weaknesses. I think, full disclosure, you're probably more comfortable in, with that field uh, than I am. But having said that, there are things that you have in your book that I think all Christians can really profit from, regardless of their perspective on that issue. And it particularly has uh, uh, relates to uh, the question of, of, of the science of self-control. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Sure, let's do that. So, so humans should and ought to exhibit self-control. Uh, I have several grandchildren uh, that are young and learning all about what is self-control. Uh, so how do human beings exhibit self-control? And, 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 and how is this unique to the human race? I think the broader frame is understanding lots of different kinds of animals, including us, engage in lots of self-regulation, we might call it. We uh, 
of course, chemically regulate. <laughs> we biologically regulate. We move ourselves around. If it's too hot over here, I'll move over to here to where it's cooler. We do a lot of these kinds of regulatory activities. So by self-control, I mean something a, sort of a, a, a step above that. Self-control, what I have in mind here is really sort of mindfully recognizing certain kinds of impulses or drives and then checking those, evaluating those and say, well, do I really want to do that? What if I do this instead? Sort of almost consciously or deliberately uh, choosing between different uh, options or alternatives. I've got two different choices of actions here. Which one will I choose? And it sure looks like that kind of reflective self-control where we inhibit certain kinds of drives and tendencies. We make certain kinds of choices deliberatively. That looks like that could be unique to humans, or at least certainly to the degree that humans do it. And there's there's strong reason to think that this is well, one of the kind of hallmarks of what it means to be human. It seems to be facilitated by our great big prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain right behind your eyeballs. It's so prominent in humans and almost absent in all of their mammals. Um, it seems to be something really special about us that, that then we need to learn how to do. We've got the capacity to do it, but we need to develop it as we grow up. Well, that you describe self-control as, uh, as a muscle. I think of, of muscles as something I have on my arms and legs. So how is self-control a muscle? It's, it's a helpful analogy for thinking about uh, self-control. So if we think about muscles, yeah, they are sort of things that are just there, but they can be weak or they can be strong. We can use them or not. We can engage in exercises that make them stronger by working them out, just different kinds of activities, but we can overdo it and then they cramp up and don't work anymore or we get a tear or they're just exhausted and we can't use them. Well, in a similar kind of way, our self-control can be thought of as a muscle like that. For us to get really good at exercising self-control, we have to exercise our self-control. We actually have to engage in this sort of deliberative activity of, oh, I feel a temptation to do X. I'm going to do not X instead, or I will do X, but I know exactly why I'm doing it. We need to actually give it a chance um, to build up that muscle. But if we try to exercise it in domains where it's doomed to fail, it's just going to frustrate us. We're not going to build up that self-control muscle. Um, in fact, we may exhaust ourselves and then we don't have that resource when we need it. So we're kind of looking for a Goldilocks zone here. We want to exercise it, but we don't want to exhaust it. And so uh, I think the other thing that's helpful in thinking about self-control as a muscle is it means it's a limited resource that we've got. It's not infinite. So we sometimes like, you know, just like muscles, they're not infinite. I'm not infinitely strong. I'm a little strong. Um, and that's an important thing because I think we often put pressure on ourselves to think that, well, if we just had enough self-control, if we just dig deep enough, we can do whatever. Well, it's just not true. At a certain point, we're, we're creatures. We're fallible. We're limited. And our self-control muscle can get exhausted. So continuing on the analogy of, of muscle, we could talk about muscle memory. And uh, we've talked on other podcasts with others about developing self-control the very same way that perhaps a musician would, would develop muscle memory in playing a musical instrument with their fingers or things of that nature. Uh, is that what, is that what you're thinking about here that within certain limits, we can, we can train ourselves or we can be um, there, there are certain regulative practices that we can do that develop self-control. Is that what you're thinking? 
That's part of what I'm thinking here for sure. So we can present ourselves or put ourselves in situations where we, for instance, uh, endure mild temptations of certain sorts that then we get used to resisting. And then we can get over those. Uh, so this is a kind of therapeutic technique that's used to address fears of certain sorts, for instance. If I'm afraid of heights, the thing to do is not to avoid all high situations. It's to give myself conquerable uh, exercises with dealing with heights. I'm going to go up two steps on the ladder. Uh, okay, now I can work it my way up to three steps on the ladder. <laughs> now I can go to four steps, right? Uh, in safe, controlled kind of ways that I can incrementally build up that self-control muscle of facing a fear or facing a temptation or being morally courageous in some way. So that's what I have in mind there. And yes, we can uh, make it almost habitual in certain domains that suddenly this isn't requiring so much willpower. It's not, I don't have to sort of force myself so much. I know that uh, when that alarm rings in the morning, I get out of bed. I don't hit the snooze three times. Uh, <laughs> I've worked it down to, no, I actually get out of bed now and I know I can do that. And that empowers me to go ahead and do that. Um, but there's another angle on this. And that is because our self-control is limited, we need to judiciously use that resource to not only invest in getting more of it, but in reducing the amount that we need in a day-to-day -day business. So if I know that I've got a problem with donuts then I'm going to reroute my driving pattern so that I don't go past the donut shop every day. If that's a severe temptation for me, um, I'm going to avoid those situations where I know I'm going to be overwhelmed. I'm going to rearrange my environment to be, uh, well, a positive environment for me instead of a negative one. Um, for instance, Andy Crouch in his little book, that's a fantastic little book called the tech wise family. Right. That's a great he, book. He talks about, organizing your living space in such a way that it facilitates you doing the kinds of things and becoming the kind of person that you feel like God has called you to be. So make it easy to, if you think doing the arts is important as it is in his house, right? He's got an art station set up. In my house, my wife is a line dance instructor. So we made sure in the basement, we actually set up a dance floor that it's just clear. We don't have to move furniture when it's time to dance. It's always there. Mm -hmm. I try to keep my ukulele out so that I can play it. <laughs> um, make those things that you value easy instead of hard to do. So, you know, putting the television in the you know, front and center in your house, right, makes it easy to sit down and watch television. Well, if that's what you value, then great. But if it's something you'd like to do less of, rearrange your space so that you don't need to use self-control to avoid doing those things or use lots of self-control to do the things you want to do. I, th there's so many practical aspects to what you're saying that I hope, hopefully our listeners are catching on that uh, th this is a really valuable area of exploration for uh, people of faith to, to utilize uh, the scientific resources that are there because there's been a lot of studies about the things you're talking about. I, in your book, you argue that self-control is, quote, more threatened by distraction, temptation, and exhaustion than ever before, close quote. So why is that? Well, we now live in a society that, uh, or at least most of us live in societies that have, um, well, they've pushed us far away from the kind of nature that we're endowed with. In past conditions, we were 
you might think of it as closer to the ground in some ways, right? The natural equipment we have by virtue of being human beings, however God brought us about in this way, right? It was a good match for our our environmental situations, had the roughly the right number of people that we'd have to know and care for, have roughly the right number of temptations, um, challenges, obstacles, skills that we need to master. But we've, we humans have created our own artificial environments that have, keep, have kept ratcheting up the demand on ourselves. So we have to learn more and more things. Um, so it's, you know, gone are the days that by the time a kid was 12, 13, 14 years old, they were actually working a job. Right. We, we need another, some people would say 10 years of education beyond that before you even start contributing to what looks like a, a productive life. Well, that's a demand of the kind of environments that we live in that then forces us to keep digging deep, keep learning more, keep self-regulating, keep avoiding the natural impulses that we have. It's has been talked about in terms of sexual behaviors too, as now we're telling kids, you know, really you shouldn't get married until you're done with college and then maybe established in a job and all this other stuff, whether in their mid to late twenties before they're starting to get married for the first time, which means they've had to rein in sort of kind, uh, certain kinds of sexual temptations now for a long time. Yes. It was not true in the past. And on top of that, we've got advertisers. <laughs> Um, and and uh, vendors of all sorts bombarding us with images and temptations, uh, trying to make us um, dissatisfied with who we are and what we are, right? And we get through this, this through digital media and billboards, and everybody is trying to get us dissatisfied and acting to spend our money, to give them our money so, you know, we can you know, eat those donuts again. Yeah. And so, (laughs) so we live, yeah, we live in an environment in which uh, historically speaking is very much an anomaly. So when the typical person had to spend 80% of their waking hours working to just have enough food to eat, uh, there was not uh, the affluence that we enjoy today. So they didn't have the luxury of leisure time nor did they have the luxury of discretionary money. And those are two things now that only kings and, and royalty in the time past ever had either one of those. So, so the question then is for uh, Christians today, how do I live a disciplined life in an age of affluence? Uh, how, 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 do I, uh, how do I glorify Jesus Christ uh, with this surplus, and I know it's going to sound odd, uh, you know, describing it this way, but this surplus time and money that I have compared historically to what people have had in the times past. And here, here's where you claim that science can actually um, help religious activity, uh, and that science has something to say to us that can be helpful. So what does science reveal about uh, religious activity and self-control? Yeah, as far as general patterns go, what's been found is that people who are uh, religiously involved, and usually this means um, not just assenting to certain kinds of belief propositions, but actually involved with their faith communities, they're uh, going to worship services at, you know weekly, they're praying on their own, they're doing all of these other kinds of things as well. They're really sort of busy and involved. Well, those, those, that kind of high degree of religious involvement has been shown to be uh, related to high degrees of self-control 
and abilities to uh, self-regulate and inhibit certain kinds of impulses. Um, so there seems to be a correlation there. And it's a correlation that survives lots of the predictable kinds of covariates or counter explanations. Um, so reviews by Mike McCullough and others have shown this kind of a relationship seems to be fairly stable. Now, it's an open question, as far as I can tell from the science, of exactly why that is. But there's some at least informed speculations like, well, faith communities are the natural place in which historically um, in hum humans, we would have learned our values. We would have learned impulse control. We would have supported each other in that impulse control both good and bad, what, what, you know, we motivate each other to do good. We dismotivate each other to do bad. We've created certain kinds of rituals, practices, rites, uh, ceremonies in which we exercise self-control for the sake of the, of the group, right? Sit there and be quiet. Okay. Now stand up now sing what everybody else is singing. Now sit down. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. but those are exercises, not just in social conformity, but in self-control. So those have been kind of the natural space in which a lot of self-control has been exercised from infancy is in these faith communities. And so from that perspective, it's not surprising to see that those who are heavily involved in faith communities also show signs of higher degrees of self-control in a lot of these studies, um, which then raises an interesting question of as people are sort of opting out of those faith communities and are not practicing collectively and maybe are opting for some kind of individualistic sort of spirituality that they sort of chart on them their, on their own or none at all, then are they missing out on those abilities to build up that uh, self-control muscle? We've been talking to Justin Barrett. His book is Thriving with Stone Age Minds. Dr. Barrett, where can our listeners find you? Uh, tell us about your blog or social media are where they, where they might be able to locate you. Sure. I'm president of a little organization called blueprint 1543. And you can uh, find blueprint 1543.org either on our website. We've got a little blog page there. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on, I think Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And you can follow us in any of those places. And many of my lectures show up there as well as uh, some of my colleagues who likewise are trying to bring the Christian faith and the sciences together to address big questions and problems in the world today. Dr. Barrett, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Karen. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you are in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you are called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for our segment called On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern Seminary tell you what they are reading right now. So, Dr. Amanda Quinn, what is on your bookshelf? Okay, so 
What I'm reading right now is actually a book called uh, The Glory Now Revealed, uh, written by Dr. Andrew Davis, who's actually the pastor of my church at First Baptist Durham. Um, so I'm kind of in the middle of that, but he talks, he's had done some work in church history, talks quite a bit about history, but he just talks about the things we'll find out in heaven, what will kind of be our eternal education, um, and learning all the glorious acts of God throughout history is a big part of that, of course, how the whole tapestry is woven together. You know, the idea that now we see the knotted bottom part of the tapestry, we can't tell what's going on. We'll see the beautiful revealed side then on the other side in heaven. So talks about that. So that's very, I've enjoyed reading. That's what I'm currently reading. Excellent. Uh, you got other things that you're reading, I see. I do. So I brought a couple of others. These are both um, uh, biographies on women. One of them, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, that I wrote a review of, I guess, in the past year um, by Ellen Vaughn. Um, and it's just a great book. It's part of the Becoming series. There was also a Becoming C.S. Lewis, for example, just talking about the raising and education and early family life of some of these people that we've come to know, just kind of pointing out they didn't sort of step into history when we started hearing about them. They had lives before that. So that's been a really good book, just seeing about the education of Elizabeth Elliot. How did she come to be the determinated missionary that she was, mother, wife, author, teacher, all kind of things that she did. So that's been a really good read. You also are reading Evidence Not Seen. Tell us about that. Right. So I'll read the byline here. It tells you something about it. It's uh, Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II. So that's about Darlene Diebler-Rose, who was Darlene Diebler at the time. Um, she and her husband became missionaries uh, in the jungles of the Dutch East Indies, and she ended up spending four years in a Japanese prison camp in World War II and went through... Her husband died. He was in a separate camp, and he um, he and some other men died. Um, she survived and was really a survivor, but she went through a lot of the things you may have heard people go through in Japanese prison camps, right? But she was a leader, and it was amazing to me. The thing that really stood out to me from this book that's so encouraging, it's amazing the things that she remembered from her childhood, uh, nursery rhymes she had learned, Bible verses, of course, also um, hymns she had learned. It may be something like a vacation Bible school that God used those by his spirit to you know, bring those to her mind and comfort her and help her to comfort others and get through that time period. What an extraordinary story. And thank you, Dr. O'Quinn, for those book recommendations. And thank all of you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, take a moment. Give us a brief rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next week.